Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We're honored to have Richard Clarida with us. Michael McKee, of course, doing yeoman's duty today on our economic coverage of Chairman uh, Powell. Richard Clarida, should the chair, should Governor Powell, his nominee, be quote unquote concerned about a flat yield curve? I mean, is that even in the orbit of monkey mucks like you? I would not be concerned about a flat yield curve right now. Through the wonders of the Bloomberg, I have on my screen the 10 twos curve, so the difference between the 10-year yield and the two-year yield. And I've looked at the two prior rate hike cycles in the 90s and the 2000s. The curve right now is a slope of 60 basis points. That means 10-year yields are 60 bips above two-year yields. Uh, that is pretty flat, but that the curve was as, as flat as this back in 2005, about a year after that cycle began. And it was about like this in 2006, about two years after that cycle began. So this is exactly what you'd expect for a yield curve at about the middle point of a rate hike cycle. Now, where I would get quite concerned about a yield curve uh, is if it inverts. So if the 10-year yield falls below the two-year yield, historically inverted yield curves are rare. And when they happen, almost always within 12 to 15 months, you have a recession. So I would distinguish between a flat curve in the middle of a rate hike cycle from an absolutely inverted curve. I think they're two different beasts. That's one thing where zero is really important. Right now, the curve is flat, but it's about as flat as I think you'd expect, given where we are in the Fed cycle. This is... um... Uh, something that has captured the attention of Wall Street. I'm getting so many notes on yeah. the yield curve. Everybody's uh, talking about it flattening. Uh, there does seem to be a general view that, um, and I know that you teach your students never to say these words, yeah. this time is different, but uh, that there is a little bit of something different going on this time because you've, you've got a, a change in the way um, people are looking at inflation uh, and a change in the whole idea of um, what uh, the neutral rate yeah. will be. I mean, the, you lower the neutral rate, then obviously you're not going to bid up the, the long end as much. And that wasn't factored in before. I, I, as you know, because I've, I've spent a lot of time at Bloomberg talking about it, there, I'm definitely in the camp and have been for three years of a new neutral. That's what we've called it uh, in our writings at, at PIMCO. So, and the Fed now embraces this idea of a new neutral. So, what, so, so, Mike, what the new neutral tells me is that the overall level of rates is lower. That means short rate, the Fed will end up at a lower destination. That means bond yields will <clears throat> be lower than they were in the prior decades. But it doesn't have as much to say, I think, about the slope of the curve. So average rates are lower in a new neutral world. Uh, but the curve, I think, on average, will have a positive slope because of the term premium that on average investors need to earn to take on that interest rate or duration <clears throat> risk. So I repeat, I'm not, I don't think this time is different. Uh, I think if we get an inverted curve, and it, obviously I'm not predicting that, but eventually if we get an inverted curve, yeah. that is a warning sign I'd pay attention to. We, we saw Richard Clarida, uh, Dr. Alarian vetted his vice chairman, I don't know, 10 days ago. My guess is Richard Clarida will be vetted as his vice chairman. Do we need a monetary PhD as vice chairman if we enjoy Chairman Powell? Well, thank you. I, I, I do think, uh, first of all, I think Jerome Powell's an excellent uh, appointment. I don't think you need to have a PhD to be a Fed, Fed chairman, so let me get that out of the way. I do, do, I do think that modern monetary policy, for better or worse, has a substantial 
uh, analytic and model-based component. So I think it will be important for the Fed to have some members of the Board of Governors who have that expertise uh, and, and, and experience, whether or not it needs to be the vice chair. Obviously, there are other factors uh, at, at, at work. I don't think you need seven PhDs on the Board of Governors to do monetary policy, but you probably don't want zero either. So. <laughs> Which is where we will be after Janet Yellen leaves. Actually, I think Lael has, has a PhD, yeah. but she has spent her entire career pretty much in politics rather than uh, practicing economics. Yeah, Lael, so, Lael's a very good economist, so but, she's uh, in that category. But uh, uh, would you expect, would it be better, because I guess you can't say the word expect with Donald Trump in the White House, but would it be better to have someone with a, uh, a, a broad background who is not, though, a John Taylor who wants to do things completely different uh, for a Jay Powell who is not a PhD economist. In other words, would there be a real tension with somebody who wants to change the Fed uh, when they talk about a, a, a Warsh or a Taylor as vice chair? I, I, I do think that uh, the Fed and other central banks, uh, because communication and guidance are so, so important, do need a framework that both that they understand it, that they can uh, communicate. So I think having a governor, yeah. having a vice chair who embraces that framework and can also see its shortcomings is essential. I'm not going to get into particular names of particular <clears throat> folks. Oh, come on. We're geez. among friends. Come on. <laughs> both, I think, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from both of them. Uh, but, but I do think, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, that – you, you don't need all seven governors to have that background, but I think you need yeah. more than zero. I think Clarida mm. L. Arian on the board, and we move this radio studio to our, the Fed. We just yeah, do it from there We just do it from the Eccles Building. <laughs> Joining us live from the Eccles <laughs> Building. In our, we could have, we, 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 I know we could have windows. We could have a studio with windows on the outside and watch grass grow. Yeah. Constitution <laughs> Avenue, which some would say be more not? exciting than what's in the hallways. Richard Clarida, thank you so much. Greatly thank you for having me. With PIMCO. Tuesday is not a waste of a day when the OECD comes out with their outlook in Paris is the wonderful Catherine uh, Mann. Catherine, the, the yes, OECD. The, the OECD. And Michael McKee's here as well. Yes, Catherine. I know we brought Michael. him in <laughs> to yes, ask yes, smart, yes, yes. smarter questions than me. Mm -hmm. Catherine, when you look at a 25 or 40 page PowerPoint, what's the single message that stands out for the OECD? 2019 is not going to be as good as 2017, and what are you going to do about it? Wait a minute. You said 2019. What about 2018? Well, 2018 will sort of be like a little bit different from 2017, but the point is, you know, 2017 yeah. is where we are. This is a really good year. Uh, take the time uh, when you got wind under your wings to do the kinds of reforms that are necessary to, uh, to be good in 2019. And by the way, business has to do the same thing. This is a good year for them. They should be putting into place something that will make them a leader in 2019. Is anybody around the world doing that? Um, well, I think everybody's doing a little bit, but they're not doing very much. There's an awful lot of reform fatigue uh, and uh, arguments that we don't need to do anything anymore. Look, 2017 is great. So we, you know, we can uh, close up shop, uh, that, that policy reform shop and go home. And the answer is, is that we're in an environment where 
where there's much greater demand for structural reforms. I mean, we've got all this digital stuff happening. We still have a lot of trade, uh, globalization, and changes in consumer preferences are really important. And we need to do the reforms to either take advantage of it, which is, you know, businesses, or to avoid uh, and mitigate the consequences of adjustment, which is what policymakers should be doing. Well, then the question, obviously, um, for people in this country, I know you're across the Mm, pond looking back, is uh, does the do the tax bills since there isn't one but do the tax bills that are being worked on move us in the direction that the OECD thinks we should go well so the OECD has always argued um, consistently that the corporate tax rate is is too high and inconsistent with sort of uh, prospects for growth. But on the other hand, um, the effective tax rate in the United States is quite a bit lower than the statutory. So that's the first thing. Uh, and then secondly, when we talk about uh, corporate taxes, we talk about ta- corporate tax reform. Um, and it's not clear how much reform there is in these uh, detailed packages. Of course, we haven't seen the details, so we don't know, relative to tax cut. And I think that that's a balance that's a very important thing to consider. Within that is, is, is Mike mentions the tax reform in, in that. Are we heavily indebted? I mean, I mean, if we look at things are great now, I guess we're yeah. supposed to like get control of our debt. Is it is an OECD statement? Is there a lot of summed public debt out there? Well, we've decided to focus on private debt in this report because Please, um, Very pe- people, have, of you. You know, people have focused Just on the public deck account. a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're looking at the private debt, and everybody's pretty much got more debt now than they did in 2005. So that doesn't even account what happened before the bubble. And, you know, when you've got a lot of debt, you're you're exposed to potential shocks, and you're also uh, put, you're potentially misallocating, and so you have productivity consequences in the medium term. So so that's why we wanted to focus on, on private debt this time around because there's a lot more of that actually than there is of the public debt. Um, Let me switch continents and and ask Mm. um, about Europe at this point, Uh, well, both Europe and the UK. You have a gloomy forecast for the UK. Uh, The general feeling that one gets from the ECB is that uh, things are pretty darn good on the continent. Um, How do you see it? No, I think they're right. I mean, um, the uh, growth rate that we have for uh, 2017 for the euro area is 2.4, and that's in comparison to 1.8 in 2016. So so we think Europe is in good shape in 2017, but it is also the place that shows the most deterioration through the forecast projection period of 2019. And it's because Europe is running off of monetary policy now and running off of fiscal expansion, something that they haven't done for quite a while. So it's doubly important or triply important for for Europe to put into place the reforms that will complete the single market and do something on uh, advantageous on digital, create a single market in digital, and then, of course, um, uh, handle the banking reforms that are necessary to get rid of the non-performing loans and the the zombie firms. Well, everybody's been worried about Italy. Uh, How how do you see them uh, going forward? Because they're going to have an election next year, and they've been the country that's been saddled with the worst banking system, uh, the most non-performing loans. Are they getting better? Are they getting Mm -hmm. worse? Are they treading water? So, again, Italy is comparing... 2016, which of course is data, and 2017, which is actually mostly data, again, going from 1.1 to 1.6. So Italy looks pretty good in 2017. uh, But again, it's got things that it needs to do in order to cement that. Um, It's making progress on the, it's making progress on the banks, uh, banking situation. Um, A little bit faster progress would be a good idea. 
Within then, and I want to get to this as we uh, look at our next section with you, Dr. Mann, uh, to China. The OECD has mm-hmm. to look at Asia, too. We've seen dollar differentials, different dollar dynamics between Europe and the U.S., in China, Asia, in the, the U.S. What about the greater Asian sphere? Did they slow down into 2019 as well? So the issue uh, about that is there are two sort of competing uh, tensions there. One is the uh, role of uh, Asia as part of the global value chain, uh, where China is at one end, but then the uh, advanced economies in Europe and the United States are at the other end. And so, so Asia, on the one hand, gets the benefit of China, mm-hmm. and but uh, and and then sales uh, ultimately to um, the advanced economies and. We ha- uh, we see that there are a couple things. Um, one is the, the the probability that there might be a little bit of a bumpy ride as as China uh, addresses its its corporate debt situation. You know that's that's potentially a little bit bumpy. Um, it has consequences uh, channeling through the real economy uh, through the trade, uh, and that will affect Asia. Um, and it'll affect Asia first before it affects anybody else. And then there's also the potential for a little bit of a bumpiness in financial market uh, relationships. In that case, they're probably going to jump over Asia uh, and not affect Asia very much. Uh, and it might hit um, more financial institutions in the United States and Europe. And Europe. When you talk about Asia, are you uh, when you look at Asia, are you factoring in um, a- any kind of trade issues with the United States because there's a lot of talk about what mm-hmm. the president may do after the first after tax reform gets out of the way he's got this steel tariff thing pending etc. Mm-hmm. So uh, we don't make judgments about policies that haven't yet uh, been uh, at least uh, you know kind of put on the table so that we have at least some idea of what's going on. Um, the I think you know to one extent what what the president might want to do is to focus on China and and not have anybody else get affected by it. But, um, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric uh, and then the policies um, seem to be different. So, you know, we really have to see, wait and see something actually being uh, put on the table. From your perspective quickly at OECD, is this a neo-mercantilist president of the United States? Neo-mercantilist. Is he like Uh, Ross Navarro zero sum? (laughs) So, well, I, I think that there's, um, you know, trade is very complex these days with global value chains. Uh, it's not just uh, guns for butter or yeah. oil, you know, wheat and wine kind of back in the old Ricardian days. And and that complexity, and not to mention which, uh, you know, the United States is a big producer of services, a very important ingredient as a service mm-hmm. sector, in fact, producing a current account surplus or trade surplus. So, you know, it's a complex, uh, very complex set of issues that, that – all of, hopefully, all of those issues are going to be incorporated in any kind of trade policy as it is uh, put into place. Catherine Mann, thank <laughs> you so much. Greatly appreciate it. She's chief economist for the OECD, and we say good morning in Boston at Brandeis. I want to get this question in with Diane Swank of Chicago and before Michael McKee dives in with more sane questions. Diane, off of historic U.S. 66 near the Argo National Laboratory, where Enrico Fermi held court, is I-55 in the worst bridge 
in <laughs> Illinois. It is at I-55 in Lamont Road. I've got that from good engineering sources. Within all this Washington policy, why can't we once and for all fix the other 1,000 I-55 and Lamont Road bridges that we desperately need to fix? Well, this is... <laughs> you've asked the million-dollar question or trillion-dollar question. We need at least a trillion <laughs> to two trillion. Trillions. I mean, robots aren't going to build yeah. the bridge. People no, build the bridge. No, they're not, and we don't have enough people to build the bridge either, but we need to fix them. And, you know, the, we're one bridge catastrophe away from having to deal with this problem, and that's really serious. The other issue is we know that actually infrastructure spending has a payback over a long period of time where it boosts productivity, and it's undermining our productivity today. So it seems to have gotten lost in translation, the infrastructure spending and investment we need in this country just in our basic infrastructure, and I mean basic infrastructure, roads and bridges. The problem uh, that, well, there's two problems. One, there is no infrastructure plan. There um, is none. And Zero. The, the other Zero. problem is um, if you're going to cut taxes massively and cut you revenue massively, you don't either. have any money for infrastructure, right? Uh, Even though you're adding over $2 trillion according to some scoring of the um, tax plans, depending on which tax plans you look at and which uh, they're moving all the time. It's a moving target. But we're well over a trillion to two trillion, maybe even 2.2 trillion, adding to the deficit over the next 10 years. And we're not doing a single cent for infrastructure. The other issue in this tax bill is it cuts back on private activity bonds. And the whole talk has been that... Let's explain that. that, Explain that. that. Well, um, basically, uh, to oversimplify cities or localities, anybody who's issuing muni bonds can uh, guarantee um, a part of a bond issued by a private authority uh, to okay. to build something. Cool. They use this a lot for things like football stadiums and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of what they were talking about, Dan, f- for infrastructure was public-private right. partnerships. Right. And this eliminates that ability. I mean, it it makes it more expensive, and this is this is you know the the issues that we're dealing with. The U.S. economy is doing better. It's not perfect. It's still very uneven. We know that um, wages are very uneven. Income inequalities are still very uneven, but we're improving. That's the good news. We've got a tailwind going into the holiday season. We're going to see the best year-over-year gain since 2010, which is off a very soft year. We've got people actually spending discretionary spending again, actually able to afford to travel to and away from their loved ones, which you know depends depending on where you are in your family, that is a nice option to have. These are all very important things that are happening in the economy. We're spending more on upgrading our homes. We're not buying as many homes as we could be buying. Home sales, um, although new home sales popped a bit yesterday and are elevated, they're still low relative to the past. People are adding on. They're buying furniture. They're remodeling. That's all good news. Um, but you add on top of this this complex tax cut stuff, and you do want to improve our competitiveness globally. But we're really just not thinking about these things in a long-term horizon that is more than getting a win um, for one party or another. Let's let's talk about this in terms of the, the overall economy. I get your views on the economy now. Bill Dudley said last night that uh, we need tax reform. We need to fix the tax yep. code, but we don't yep. need additional stimulus right now. Do you agree? Um, that exactly. And that's, I mean, that's the key point. Is so the economy is in good shape is what you're saying. The economy's in good shape. You want to save some dry powder, and certainly Bill Dudley would be one of the people most concerned about this, is dry powder for when the economy stumbles again. And we don't have a lot of extra dry powder in expanding our deficits when the economy is bad, but that's when tax cuts without offsetting 
um, cuts elsewhere in the budget or revenue-neutral kinds of tax reforms come into play. So what we're seeing is we need reform to increase okay. efficiency in the U.S. economy. Diane, we can, don't need to add to the deficit. Can I ask a question of Mike McKee? Is that okay? Am I rude here, Diane? <laughs> no, you can't ask Mike okay. a question. <laughs> Mike, Mike I, help me and Diane and all of our listeners, including Tax Tucker. John's changing his name to Tax Tucker if this legislation <laughs> goes through. But, but Mike, every interview people say, this bill is challenged. Explain again the urgency of Republican leadership to cram this thing down our throats by Tuesday today, Thursday, and then whenever the co- committee is after that. I can't explain the urgency to get this done. You know, they set an end-of-the-year deadline or a Christmas deadline. Um, it, it makes no sense because this is so complicated. The only thing that people figure is that they're trying to get this through before people know what's in it, before any political opposition builds to it, and ahead of the Alabama Senate election, which could complicate things. So uh, that seems to be the the okay. urgency. They could do it. This, <clears throat> Republicans still going to control the Senate in 2018. They, they could do it next year. Um, but this is a political imperative more than an okay. economic one, as Diane says. Mike, well, that's, and that's the real issue is that, you know, we need to think of what is what is happening in our economy today. What do we need today? And anticipate what we need going forward. Why do we need tax reform? Because our tax code is a mess. We need to reform it, make it simpler, broaden the base. These are all like sort of almost cliche words, but it seems that they've been lost on Washington. Right. We also need to think about infrastructure. That would mean we'd have to raise revenue somewhere else to pay for it. That may be doable because it does have a payback to it. But no one is talking in those terms. And I think really Mike hit the nail on the head when he said they're rushing this through before anyone can find out all the intended and unintended consequences. And that's not how yeah. legislation should be done. I'm going to get this out on uh, 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 Twitter as well. Michael McKee, Robert Posen, the hugely respected Robert uh, Posen, his work in the mutual fund industry for years. In writing in the FT today, Trump tax bills would push U.S. jobs and factories abroad. That from Bob Posen. That'd be interesting. I have to read that. Um, I want to. I want to shift gears because we only have a few minutes left here with Diane and, and talk about uh, the holiday season and yes. uh, retail sales, yes. etc. Because you're an expert on that. You've done forecasts for years about this. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, more years than I like to admit, Mike. Right? <laughs> we're not we're not talking about that because I've been around the <laughs> same way. I've been reading those for a long time. Um, everybody likes to make a big deal out of Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but they don't really tell us anything about what the no, holiday they season they become is going to be. I mean, as interesting as you know, Thanksgiving's become a day. Black Friday sales start the week before Black Friday. It's kind of nonsense, and consumers have grown very savvy. I mean, what we've done is, and to you know, the chagrin of retailers, retailers reduced their inventories a bit, and they said they were able to keep margins up. Of course, they didn't sell as much because not as much was on sale during Black Friday sales. I think the important issue here is consumers have gotten incredibly savvy, and they will wait and play chicken with retailers as long as it takes. And now with the Internet, it used to be if we had a bad snowstorm right before that Christmas holiday, it would ruin the Christmas holiday. Well, people can now order from home during the Christmas holiday, but they can also game out online where the best deals are. And I think that's one of the interesting issues is that we've seen that shift in ability and how savvy consumers are. And they've continued to get, this has been going on for decades, they, they time vehicle sales to when there's the best deals in vehicle sales. They've learned how to, you know, play chicken with the retailers. I think the other important issue is the shift that we're seeing into discretionary spending. I can't emphasize that enough because it's been 
been absent for so long, the ability to travel, the ability to go on vacations, the ability to drive to a destination, to book a hotel. In fact, the weekend rates in some of the most popular cities, places like New York, are now exceeding the weekday rates, which means the senior citizens that are traveling and the people who can afford to travel on a weekend, you're not getting the discount you once did because now no. it's as much a premium as a weekday travel as a business traveler. No. That's good news for the economy. Diane Swank, thank you so much. Uh, Wide-ranging this morning, Diane Swank, Economics out of Chicago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.